So we're going to do a little review. In the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus gave his disciples, including us, vital information about the interim between Advents. And embedded in his briefing are seven essential core principles. So by taking his instruction to heart, we'll not just survive the interim, but emerge as Jesus' victorious ministry partners. So what I've done is I've brought out everything that we've been using uh, as kind of ways to uh, capture a lesson, and that's what we're going to just kind of walk through for a moment, okay? So first is one heart. Obey Jesus because you love him, and love rocket propels obedience. I'm not going to launch it or anything like that, but, but the idea is that if you love Jesus, it rocket propels obedience. You are not going to survive in the interim that is between now and when Jesus comes unless your allegiance to the Lord is love-driven. And we gave you several exercises for that. Measure his love, measure your sin, and obey as a benefit, not a burden. Then we talked about one way, trust him for direction and guidance. And we used a, a laser beam and somebody found some coins. We'll just go to the cross and just say, if you follow the Lord's guidance, he can take you to the place that wisdom would guide you. He actually provides perfect laser guidance. And sometimes you can't see your way, which is why even when you're in a fog, and hello, oh, we got a plug in? No, I think we're coming here. There we go. Even when you're in a fog, you can follow the taillights, which is Jesus loves you. That's the cross. And Jesus loves you with a perfect love. Then the third principle we did is one truth. If you align your words and deeds to his word, you will actually tap into divine power. Just watch this. Truth-driven living yields leveraged results. Even someone who's quite small can lift someone who's quite large because he's using a lever to do it. And that's what the word of God is. It's a lever that helps us to do amazing things. Principle number four was one life. Embrace Jesus as your sole source of life. In other words, you need to be plugged in to Jesus because that's where light and life comes from. Life powered by Jesus overcomes the darkness. And we talked about a single faith exercise, which is basically establish an ongoing faith connection to Jesus as Savior, and the light and the life of Christ will show in you. Then we did one mission, devote your life to advancing the disciple-making mission that Jesus began. And I showed you uh, an acorn or some acorns. And I said that we can actually bear fruit because we have this life connection with Jesus. We can actually bear fruit which will produce a tree, which will produce acorns that produce a forest of trees. That's our mission. And so we talked about your exercise. Your first one is seek your one. Initiate conversations that help you discern where someone is at in your circle and find out where they are spiritually. Then we talked about one piece. And on this one, what we observed was that, let me see if I can get the right thing plugged in here. All right, there we go, and there we go, and there we go. All right, nope, there we go. The world that we live in, I never realized that pastoring was going to be so electronically challenging. Anyway, it's all right. The world that we live in is going dark. But we have actually been told, you're to be the light, which means that we are going to be an irritation to the world. The world is going to hate us. 
but you can actually use that hatred to affirm your identity. You can actually use hatred as a positive thing. I belong to Jesus. I can convert the rejection of men into confirmation that I am following the Lord. And so we can use tribulation as a transformative uh, asset. Even as the world is going darker, we can stay brighter and brighter and brighter and get more and more hatred, which confirms more and more that we belong to the Lord. Then uh, we've got one more that I want to do, but that's coming later in this sermon. And so I'll show you that seventh principle. But basically what this is saying is, what's your motive? What's your motivation? It's love for the Lord. Where does your guidance come from? It comes from him. He shows me what I need to do. Where does my power come from? It comes from the word of God. That's the lever that I'm able to use. Where is my life? My life is in him. I'm connected to him and he's the source of my life. What's your purpose? My purpose is to produce acorns that produce trees that produce forests. And what is my perspective? My perspective is even though the world hates me, I am at peace. So we'll review that one more time when we get to the end, okay? And I will leave this here after the sermon. If you want to come take pictures or whatever so you can show your kids or your kids want to come play with the lever or whatever, that's fine after the service. Not right now, please, okay? I, bought it. I'm, I think I'm going to turn this off so that we don't, uh, get, you don't get distracted. So, John 14, 1 through 6 is our passage for this morning. If you turn there, I'll read. This is Jesus talking in the upper room. And he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Israel once questioned the value of worshiping God. Here's what they said. This is in Malachi 3:14, And the prophet is quoting them. You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we've kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They're actually asking a question. Is it worth it? And their conclusion was, it's not. The 11 are about to face a similar test where it would be easy for them to say, have I just wasted three years of my life? Now I'm going to quote E.A. Blum because I think it's so good and uh, there's passages that support each of these statements. Jesus said that he was going away, that he would die, that one of the 12 was a traitor, that Peter would disown him three times, that Satan was at work against all of them, and that all of the disciples would fall away. The cumulative weight of these revelations must have greatly distressed them. I mean, everything's going to come unglued. 
in the next 24 hours. Do you identify? There are times when we can be pulled toward the is it worth it question. Maybe you've poured tremendous time and energy into something for Jesus and it doesn't seem like it's doing anything. I've had seasons like that where I've done everything I know to do and yet it doesn't seem like it's accomplishing anything and I'm asking myself, is it worth it? Maybe you've watched others prosper who aren't playing by the rules while you have and you're going nowhere. This passage is Jesus' answer to the is it worth it question. So let's jump in and let's see what Jesus has to say. In verse 1 he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And do not let is a present tense and then there's a little word. There are different words that you could use in Greek, ou or may for not. And when you use a present tense with may, basically what it's saying is something is going on, stop it. Stop allowing your heart to be troubled. In other words, you've been letting yourselves get churned up and anxious. Stop doing that. By the way, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. That's that same word that Jesus used when he was talking about himself. He says, My, I'm greatly troubled about what's coming. And let's remember what we said then. Jesus was troubled. He faced the trouble of the cross so that we don't have to. Basically, he wants them to stop freaking out. <laughs> He's saying, stop going crazy. Now, understand this. They have trusted Jesus. Three years earlier, they, in the case of some, they left their nets and followed him. Others made other steps, but they trusted Jesus. They said yes to him. But when he says, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe in me, he's basically saying, trust me. In other words, you can trust Jesus for your salvation, but trusting Christ does not make us invulnerable to becoming troubled or anxious. And that's what was happening to them. The threat of panic or anxiety or fear is real, especially when we can't even see the purpose of an event. So what's the antidote? Jesus says, trust me, trust Father. Basically, follow the taillights. Don't let how things seem produce panic. Trust what you know. You know who I am. You know who Father is. Focus your trust there. They are about to experience the ultimate Romans 8.28 experience. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Well, if there was ever a time when you would be inclined to say, that passage doesn't work, this would be that passage, this would be that place. Because they are about to see the worst thing that a man could do, basically betray Jesus. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, including betrayal by one you thought was your friend and your comrade. Really? Yes, because God is going to use that to accomplish your good. 
If he can do that, if he can make of the betrayal of his son the best possible thing that could happen to us, then how much more can he do it with whatever we're facing? In my father's house, he says in verse 2, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is proposing a perspective shift. I don't want you to fixate on the circumstances that we're about to go through. I want you to look past that to see what's coming, and I'm going to let you tap into some divine viewpoint here. Here's what I know is going to happen. I want you to know it. Namely, we are going to be separated, but it is not a permanent separation. It's temporary. You and I right now are living in a temporary situation. We're in the waiting period between his first advent and when he returns. He says, by the way, heaven is Father's house. And heaven here refers to some place, I don't know where it is, but some place in which Father has chosen to represent himself. He's everywhere, but he's chosen to represent himself in a certain place, and I don't know where that is. But I thought I would blow your mind a little bit by something. I actually have a picture in my office of the uh, Hubble XDF, which is the Extreme Deep Field Study, which was released in 2012. Now, in order to, before you get to see this picture, yeah, don't show it yet. Okay, good. Before you see this picture, I want you to understand what you're looking at, all right? So what I want you to do is imagine a square that is one millimeter wide. You know, that's about that much, right? That is a really small square. And so to do this particular study, the Hubble telescope was focused on an area that size, uh, and that size would be at a distance of one meter from you, so about a little over three feet away. Just imagine looking at a piece of the night sky through a window that is one millimeter square, all right? Now, to set up this study, it's actually a compilation of some things that were done over a 10-year period of time, but imagine finding a place in the universe where there is absolutely nothing. So that's what they did. There were several candidates, but they pointed it at a certain location, one millimeter square in the night sky, and they collected data and images, in some cases for days or months, one photon at a time. Now, this one millimeter square, by the way, is one twenty-sixth millionth of the total night sky. In other words, what I'm about to show you is duplicated 26 million times. It's just in this particular location, there was nothing close, so we could actually look to the farthest reaches of space. All right, now let's take a look at what the picture looks like, all right? What you're looking at is five to 10,000 galaxies like the Milky Way in a place that you, there's nothing showing. In other words, there's 26 million of these things out there. That's how big heaven is. And Jesus says, heaven is quite expansive. Based upon what I can see, I'm saying, yeah, it's amazing what this looks like. And these galaxies, many of them are Milky Way type galaxies. So there's five to 10,000 Milky Ways in one twenty-sixth millionth of the night sky. <laughs> That's how big the heaven is. And Jesus says, Father's preparing a place for us. 
It's in Father's house, and it is expansive and ample for us all. Now, Jesus was a carpenter. I don't think this means he's, you know, putting together two-by-fours. But what he's telling them is, my departure is going to make it possible for you to freely dwell in Father's world. And there's plenty of room. And you are going to live large in that place. And I'm going to come back and get you. The earth dwellers, the concept of Jesus coming back is frightening. For example, in Revelation, we read this about them. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Basically, what they're saying is when Jesus comes back, we want to get as far away from him as possible. We want to hide inside the mountain because they don't want to have anything to do with him. That's not our story. If we know Jesus Christ, here's the miracle. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. The world may be trying to get as far away from him as they can, but you and I, who name the name of Jesus, will stand in the presence of God and his glory, blameless, with great joy. We'll be going, yes! <laughs> and I'm confident what I just did doesn't come close to it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There is a spot reserved in heaven. It's got your name on it. <laughs> Jesus is going to come and get us. And it says, I will receive you. That's actually a welcome. He's going to fling open the door and say, come on in. Make yourself at home. Now, I'm sure I don't have a clue what it's going to be because anything I think of or that you think of is not going to do it justice. And then get this, we will dwell together. There where I am, there you may be also. We're going to hang out with Jesus. We're going to know Father. We're going to stand blameless with great joy. In verses 4 and 5, he says, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas is basically saying, look, I can't get a route to where you're going if I don't know the destination that I can plug into my phone. So how's that going to work? But Thomas knows Jesus, and that's all he needs to know to get to his ultimate destination. That's all we need to know. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the one who will make it possible for you to dwell in Father's presence, and I will handle transportation. You don't have to charter or anything. You don't have to worry about anything. I got this covered, and I will bring you there. Is that not unbelievable? No one else is capable of doing this, but Jesus will do this. 
Some of us may own homes, maybe even mansions. But this is not our true home. I don't care how you live, we are camping. By comparison, we don't belong here. We belong with him. And we will be home soon. The world does not have such a hope. Before Christ, this is a statement that Paul makes in Ephesians about us before Christ. But it describes all those who don't know Jesus. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For worldlings, for someone who doesn't know Jesus, this world is as good as it gets. There is no hope, there is no sure prospect of anything better. But for we who know Christ, Oh, it's so much better. Through Jesus Christ, get this, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The sure and energizing hope of our future with Jesus and Father is realized by faith. In other words, when someone decides, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, they actually occupy something called the circle of grace, We'll explain more of that when we get to our numbers series. And in that circle of grace, I have a sure hope of my future with Jesus Christ. So let me give you a couple exercises that will help you to deepen your hope. All right, here's the first one which is based on 1 Timothy 6, 17. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present world which, by the way, in a biblical definition, is everyone in this room. There may be an exception or two, but for the most part, if you had food in your refrigerator and had more, more than one change of garment when you chose what to wear this morning, you are considered rich by biblical standards. So everyone who satisfies those criteria, this is for you. This is for me. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited, to think I have what I have because I'm so smart. I have what I have because God's good. And to fix my hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches, money, it's a medium of exchange. It's actually designed to be mobile. So to fix your hope on something that is imminently slippery is stupid. Don't fix your hope on money, but get this, but on God. My hope is in him who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if we're going to enjoy the hope that Jesus wants us to, don't get distracted by security mirages. Something that says, hey, this is the basis of security. You need to know that you have this in your portfolio, your account, your whatever. No, don't get distracted by that because frankly, a million years from now, if you know Jesus, none of that's going to matter. It doesn't matter. Don't get distracted by that. My hope, the one thing I am banking on is not my bank. The one thing I'm banking on is Jesus has been preparing a place for me and for you and he's coming back. I don't even have to know how to get there. He's already taken care of transportation and we're going there. 
Yes, I live in a world that hates me. And the more vocal I am about the gospel, the more I will receive that hatred. But I'm here on a rescue mission. I'm here to plant acorns. And when I've finished, Jesus will say, come on home. Can't wait. Second exercise, this one's called see the finish line. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, fix your hope completely. In other words, don't hope in anything else. Fix your hope on this. What is the this that he's talking about? He says, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, we often say you are saved by grace, and that's true, as if that's the sum of it. It's not case we are saved by grace but we are sustained by grace and furthermore this passage is talking about something called future grace in other words when we arrive in Jesus presence when he returns he is going to pour out grace on us that we can't believe it we're going this and this and this that's the future grace, and basically what Peter is saying, fix your hope completely on that future grace, which will be delivered to you, not by UPS, but by Jesus himself when he is revealed. That's our future. Revelation 22:12, behold, I am coming quickly. By the way, some people have misunderstood the quickly there. He's not, uh, quickly does not mean soon in the sense of immediately. It means when it happens, it's going to happen so fast that there's no time to prepare. You're either ready or you're not. Behold, I'm coming quickly. In other words, be ready now. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This second exercise, fixing your hope completely, helps me to understand a, f a family in Hebrews 10, 34, because this is bizarre what I'm going to read to you. Uh, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who does that? Who's going, <laughs> they're taking everything. Now, I realize that our home is, we've got too much stuff. And so there may be a little bit of me that says, man, we need to simplify. But they're cleaning them out and they're going, yes, yes, yes. Did you know we have a refrigerator over here? Yes. They're celebrating the seizure of their property because the only reason they have been sympathetic to the prisoners who are imprisoned because of Jesus Christ. In other words, they've revealed who they are. We're Jesus folk. And because of that, the authorities have come and taken everything. And I can just see them kind of standing here, you know, with each other. And they're maybe not trying to do anything, but they're looking at each other and just kind of going. <clears throat> because they can't believe that they can take all they want to take. But the one thing they can't touch is explained in the verse. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing this is the knowledge that allows them to celebrate that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. 
We're going to heaven. It doesn't get any better, and no one can take it. Celebrate losses, <laughs> like the seizure of your property, as a reminder of what you cannot lose, your future with Jesus. Paul helps us understand what Jesus is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm going to read the passage because it's simply supplying additional detail about what Jesus says when he says, I'm coming back for you. We've prepared a place for you. I'm coming back. And you don't need to know the way. You know me. I'm the way. So here's what Paul says to add some more detail. This is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now I realize that Bible scholars are divided in terms of where this is actually going to happen. And that discussion could cause us to miss the fact that it's going to happen. This is our future. Now there is a clue in a Greek word, uh, apontesis, which is the word meet the Lord in the air. Every other place where that word is used in the New Testament and in the places where it is used in secular Greek, it refers to a group that goes out to meet someone who's coming to their town. It could be a, a general and you want to secure peace with him and so you go and you talk to him. Or it could be you're welcoming someone who is coming. But that suggests to me that this passage is possibly describing a group of people who go off planet to welcome Jesus to come. And it's possible that that departure is how they are able to escape from the wrath of God which is poured out. But Bible students are divided on that and I'm allowing for that. But I don't want you to miss the fact that this is our future. This is what we have to look forward to. Now I'm gonna do something, I've really, this has been the demo I've struggled with the most uh, but I'm going to do something. We are going to recreate the rapture, all right? So uh, now somebody was telling me about uh, uh, that Moody Bible Institute. They had a friend who was really into the rapture, and they decided to mess with him a little bit, and so they recreated a rapture scene for him. You know, the clothes were laying where they fell and stuff like that. We're not going to do that, okay? But I want you to see, this is basically, I have in here a, a two-by-eight, and this is gonna be the world, okay? And I can't turn this upside too much for you to see, but I'll show you enough. So inside here are all the inhabitants of the world, okay? Uh, they are little magnets, okay? And so I'll put that right there, all right? So there's the world. Now I have here a magnet, okay? This is a really big magnet. Now what you'll notice is that nobody's moving. Why is that? Their poles are reversed. 
right? I mean, this magnet, this sticks, but if I turn it around, it's forcing my hand away, isn't it? That's what is true of all the inhabitants of the world. When you come into the world, your pole is facing down. You want to get as far away from God as you possibly can. If you want to participate in the event that is the rapture, you need a change of direction, right? Well, fortunately, Jesus is willing to help somebody. So let's see if we can help this person. I want my life to go in a different direction. I am so glad that you asked, and I am willing to help you do precisely that if you will embrace me as your savior. Okay. So, so he did that. All right, that's good. Up oh, here's another one. Well, here's another one. Here's one over here. And different people, well, let's make sure I get him in there right, okay. So different people are coming to Christ because through Christ, they are able to switch their direction. Instead of being those like in Revelation who are saying, I want to get as far away from Jesus as I possibly can, cover me mountains. There are people who are saying, I want to be as close to Jesus as I possibly can. And Jesus is willing to help them because they can't do it themselves is willing to help them change direction. So now let's see what happens when Jesus comes, okay? Oh, oh, look at that. Oh, whoa, we got a bunch of them there. Now, these people, what happened to them? They didn't get raptured because they haven't come to Jesus and said, I want him to be my savior, and he has helped them to flip the direction of their life. Instead of going away from him, go toward him. And that's who Jesus is coming for. Now, I don't know in this room, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room has flipped the pole, flipped the direction of their life and is saying, I want to be as close as I possibly can to God through Jesus Christ. And so I thought, what could I do to help you? And I found something that I think would be really helpful. It's a story by Ruthana Metzgar, and you may be familiar with it because it was in a popular book, but I'm gonna read this story to you, and then I wanna to speak to anyone in this room who is not absolutely confident which way your magnet is facing. You ready? All right. As a professional singer, it was not unusual to be asked to sing for a wedding, but it was a bit unusual to sing for the wedding of a millionaire. I knew the wedding would be picture perfect, and was pleased to be able to participate. But when the invitation to the reception arrived, I knew it would be something exceptional. The reception was held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. And it was even more wonderful than I imagined. There were waiters wearing snappy black tuxedos who offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages for the most discriminating taste. The atmosphere was one of grace and sophistication. After about an hour of merriment, the bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. A satin ribbon, which was draped across the bottom of the stairs, was cut, and the announcement made that the wedding feast was about to begin. The bride and groom ascended the stairs, and the guests followed. What a lavish event of which to be a part. A gentleman with a lovely bound book greeted us as we reached the top of the stairs. May I, may I have your name, please? I am Ruthana Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy Metzger, I replied. The gentleman searched the 
book. I'm, I'm not finding it. Would you please spell it? I spelled it slowly and clearly. And after searching throughout the book, the gentleman looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name is not here. Without your name in this book, you cannot attend this banquet. Oh, there must be some mistake, I replied. I'm the singer. I sang for this wedding. The gentleman calmly answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend this banquet. As I looked around the room, I thought briefly of running to the groom and trying to plead my case, but with a hundred guests on the stairs behind me and every place at the tables assigned according to the thoughtful choices of the bride and groom, I stood silent. The gentleman with the book motioned to a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. We followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, even gracefully carved ice sculptures. And adjacent to the banquet area was an orchestra, its members all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos, preparing to fill the room with glorious music. We were led to the service elevator, stepped in, and the waiter himself pushed G for garage. My husband, thoughtfully, did not say a word, nor did I. As Roy drove out of the Columbia Tower garage, we both remained silent. After driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and gently put his hand on my arm. Sweetheart, what happened? And then I remembered. When the invitation arrived for the reception, I was very busy, and I never bothered to return the RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. As we drove on, I began to weep. I was not weeping because I had just missed the most lavish banquet of my life, but I was weeping because suddenly I knew what it will be like someday for people as they stand before the entrance of heaven. People who are too busy to respond to Christ's invitation to his heavenly banquet. People who assumed that the good things they had done, even perfect church attendance or singing in the choir, would be enough to gain entry to heaven. People who will look for their name in the Lamb's book of life and not find it there people who do not have the time to respond to Christ's gracious invitation to have their sins forgiven and accept him into their hearts. And then I wept again because I was so grateful that I had many years earlier received Christ as my personal savior and can be confident that my name is written in the most important book of life. The Lamb's book of life is yours I'd like to give an opportunity for anyone who is not sure to pray and ask the Lamb to write your name in his book. So if you would like to pray a salvation prayer, I invite you to do that. I'll give you words, but it needs to be something that is in your heart. Let's all bow our heads and let's pray. Dear God, I am a sinner. My magnet is turned, and I have lived a life trying to get away from you. But Jesus came and died on the cross, and he made it possible to fix me, to give me a future and a sure hope. And right now, in this moment, I am embracing him as my Lord and my Savior. I choose to live for him as the one who has saved me. 
And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's do a little review, shall we? Let's see here. Our motivation, we love the Lord. Our guidance comes from him. Our power is in his word. Our purpose is to make disciples. The world we live in is going to be hostile. We will need to persevere. But our confidence is we will be in the presence of the Lord when he returns. That's what defines who we are.